Ultimately, if you're thinking globally, we have a real challenge because what about the global South? How are they going to access these drugs that we may think are reasonable value at $2 million plus, but that just makes it completely impossible unless it's on a completely compassionate or other basis. That's Steve Pearson, president of the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. Earlier this month, he talked with Eric Zaganowski, an editor here at Fierce Pharma and three other experts about cell and gene therapies. Later, we'll hear more from him and the entire panel about FDA approvals, pricing concerns, and if the current model will work for gene therapies in all markets. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. Today is Friday, July 29th, and this week we have a special edition. We're devoting the entire episode to our next-gen virtual event. We had an amazing lineup of panelists, But in case you missed it, you can get the highlights right here. Keep listening. The U.S. Department of Justice cracked down on $1.2 billion worth of healthcare fraud schemes this month, charging 36 defendants with criminal fraud. Telehealth services are quickly becoming a vital tool for patients looking for an easier way to reach their healthcare providers. But they're also a hotbed for scammers, hoping to swindle insurance companies out of millions of dollars. The U.S. Department of Justice moved forward in a major cleanup effort this month, bringing charges to three dozen telehealth professionals, clinical laboratories, medtech companies, and marketing organizations. Altogether, their illegal actions raked in more than $1.2 billion in fraudulent insurance payments. According to a press release from the DOJ, the vast majority of the fraud schemes stemmed from telemedicine referrals. In many of these cases, lab operators allegedly paid off medical professionals and fraudulent telehealth providers to refer patients to their labs. With those referrals, the labs were able to charge insurance companies for expensive and unnecessary genetic tests and medical equipment. According to the DOJ's press release, many of the referrals were made after only a brief phone conversation with the patient, if they were contacted at all. The DOJ says that many patients targeted by the scams never even received the results of those tests. And meanwhile, the fraudsters allegedly used the payments to buy real estate and luxury vehicles and more. And now on to our next-gen virtual event. I've been teasing this for the past few weeks, so I'm excited to finally tell you about it. Last month, Fierce hosted an event to talk with experts across the industry about what's beyond the leading edge of biotech and pharma. If you missed the event, you can still watch the recorded sessions online at nextgen.fiercelifesciences.com. Our first panel focused on Alzheimer's disease, and there's no other therapeutic area quite like Alzheimer's. Success is hard to come by, and the team at Roche's Genentech unit know this all too well, as they're still recovering from a phase two drug trial failure for Alzheimer's. But plenty of learning can come from failure. Senior editor Annalie Armstrong talked to experts from Roche Genentech and also Eli Lilly and Iomis Pharmaceuticals to find out what comes next after that latest setback. Alzheimer's disease is not like any other therapeutic area in drug development. When I talked to the leading pharmaceutical companies to discuss the latest in Alzheimer's research, the panelists seemed to show a nod of solidarity for Greg Ripon, a VP at Roche's Genentech unit. He described Genentech's latest failure, The phase two drug, cronezumab, had failed to improve cognitive function in a group of early Alzheimer's patients who had had an inherited form of the disease. 
they had all been there before. Certainly, although we're, we're disappointed in the result uh, of that trial, like many of the trials that we've all um, been involved with, we anticipate that this will contribute quite a bit of uh, information to the field as we all learn and, and grow in our, our approach to uh, Alzheimer's disease clinical uh, development. Eli Lilly's Brandy Matthews is a behavioral neurologist. She began her career seeing Alzheimer's disease patients, but has also weathered a few failures and setbacks in the disease. She now oversees the company's portfolio of medicines for Alzheimer's. Matthews knows how hard it is to find success in Alzheimer's disease. She says that for researchers, the biggest challenge is that Alzheimer's disease evolves over a long period of time. This is what's plagued the field, that this is a chronically progressive disease. And so it's very challenging to demonstrate the therapeutic impact in the short window of the clinical trial. Despite all this, the panelists were optimistic. According to Roger Lane, head of clinical development, neurology at Ionis Pharmaceuticals, there's never been a better time to conduct Alzheimer's research. Scientists now have tools that their predecessors could have only dreamt about. I'm hoping we're very close to getting a therapy with at least some sort of modest benefit, because I think that's going to change the whole paradigm for patients and for clinicians, um, because there'll be a point of making a diagnosis and it will sort of rid the sort of nihilism that's pervading um, some areas uh, that there's nothing that can be done. This is just old age or whatever. Researchers have benefited from better tests and imaging techniques, allowing better visualization of the brain and disease progression. Companies are getting better at fine-tuning clinical trials to be able to show efficacy, such as with better patient selection processes and dosing regimens. Some of these trial changes have been made possible by learnings from the failures that have come before. Lilly has used previous data shared by other companies to figure out a better way to reveal future therapies' potential impact within the short window of a trial. With all that said, all three panelists acknowledge that there's plenty of learning to come. Lane said, for instance, that we need to better understand the fundamental process that drives Alzheimer's in the brain. Matthews would like to see more research on treatment combinations and interventions at different points in the disease. It will be important not just to shift our focus from amyloid to these other uh, exciting potential interventions, uh, but to acknowledge the long history of learning from clinical trials in the Alzheimer's disease space and just to continue to uh, pursue these therapies on behalf of patients. When it comes to the industry's environmental impact, drug makers are both a part of the problem and a part of the solution. But more companies are rolling out programs to cut carbon emissions, reduce waste, and plug into alternative energy sources. Fierce Pharma staff writer Fraser Kansteiner talked with sustainability experts from AstraZeneca, Novartis, Novo Nordisk, and more about these green initiatives. Are they doing enough? And what more needs to be done? Healthcare contributes between 4 and 5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And if it was a country, healthcare would be the fifth largest country in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. So as a sector, we are both part of the problem, but we're also part of the solution. That's Jason Snape, Global Head of Environmental Protection at AstraZeneca. He says that AstraZeneca is working on cutting up to 98% of their scope one and two carbon emissions by 2026. 98% sounds like a lot. But to understand what that really means, you have to know the difference between scope one, two, and three emissions. 
Scope 1 emissions come directly from a company's factories and sales fleets. Scope 2 refers to indirect emissions from power, heat, and cooling bought by the company. Combating emissions at all levels requires a healthy dose of collaboration. Katrina DeBona, Novo Nordisk's Corporate Vice President of Global Public Affairs and Sustainability, says that aside from the direct toll pharmaceutical companies take on the planet, the other major consideration is their supply chains. I think it's important also to stay focused on, you could say, two parts of our contribution. One is our own footprint and the opportunities we have to minimize that. And of course, the big part here is, is our, our supply chains. And-, and that's scope three emissions, which Snape from AstraZeneca says they are on the way to reduce by 90% come 2045. Those scope three emissions can add up. They include all the indirect emissions from a company's value chain, such as distributors and suppliers. Since 2015, AstraZeneca has increased its energy productivity by 64%. The company is currently sourcing 100% imported renewable power, too, and it's reduced its auto fleet emissions by 48%. AstraZeneca isn't the only one working on this. Several big pharmas have been working to lessen their environmental impact for some time. Take Novartis, for example. James Goodrow, The head of environmental sustainability external engagement at Novartis says the company has had multiple generations of targets and goals. Its latest aim is to be carbon neutral in its own operations by the middle of the decade. Climate change has the ability to dramatically disrupt healthcare delivery systems, fundamentally, and that will affect people of all incomes in all locations that that are going to see rapidly increasing rates of change uh, as a result of climate change. Um, this has to be a connection where people understand that human health is tied to planet health. Amgen is also in the game. It's met and set new targets for carbon, waste, and water. Amgen's program is called its 2027 Ambition, and it's part of the company's Road to Net Zero program. Jim Widener, Executive Director of Engineering and Sustainability at Amgen, says the goal of the plan is to achieve scope one and two carbon neutrality. Amgen is also engaging with suppliers to tackle scope three, which, again, refers to emissions that result indirectly in a company's value chain. Please don't look at sustainability as something you add to your program, incorporate it up front, incorporate it into your business processes, incorporate it into your designs, and incorporate it into how you operate. Even new companies should make the environment a top priority. Laura Ramsberg, the head of corporate affairs at Beatrice, said that early on, the company knew it had to put its sustainability goals front and center. It spent 2021 putting its environmental footprint under a microscope. Then, in May, the company rolled out its initial set of carbon emission and offset targets. By 2030, Beatrice aims to slash scope 1 and 2 emissions by 42% and scope 3 emissions by 25%. These companies have huge goals, but will they be able to achieve them? A study by Argentum, a climate risk analysis company, found that last year, only 4% of pharma and biotech companies were on track to meet the 2030 climate goals set by the Paris Agreement. And some companies with climate pledges have been slammed for greenwashing or overstating their promises without a solid plan and action steps. One way companies can get involved in sustainability efforts is to join programs like Energize, It is a collaboration between pharmaceutical companies to advance climate action. Novartis, AstraZeneca, Novo Nordisk, and seven other large pharma companies unveiled the program with Schneider Electric and Carnstone at the 2021 United Nations Conference of Parties on Climate Change. The concept is to engage hundreds of suppliers to embrace climate action for the decarbonization of the pharmaceutical industry. 
The collaboration will specifically seek to help suppliers address scope two emissions through green power procurement, which will in turn reduce the participating company's scope three emissions. Beatrice's Lara Ramsberg says this initiative is tangible. It's real. Things are happening and we need to acknowledge that. But that doesn't mean that that's enough. And that doesn't mean that that's going to get us to where these goals are. The use of artificial intelligence methods in drug research and development is really starting to take off. Recently, businesses are using AI tools to find small molecule drugs, and it is working faster and more efficiently than traditional methods. Businesses adopting AI for drug development are receiving large pharma partnerships and significant funding. Connor Hale, a senior editor here at Fears, sat down with a panel of experts to explore the evolution of AI in drug discovery. It's the result of decades of work and years of promise, but artificial intelligence is now finally beginning to demonstrate its potential in the field of drug development. But when it comes to seeing new medicines garnering the FDA seal of approval, the technology may still have a way to go. So what's the current state of AI and biopharma? I think uh, AI in drug discovery as maybe a kid that is coming out of elementary school and pretty much ready to enter middle school. That's Iker Huerga. AstraZeneca's chief data scientist for cancer research. His team is using AI to find new ways to tackle hard-to-treat diseases. What we are seeing at AstraZeneca is like we see AI really entering and penetrating all the different aspects of drug discovery, all the way from early discovery, uh, target identification, validation, including uh, optimizing um, late development oncology portfolio, like clinical trial design and things like that. In the past year, AstraZeneca and its partner, Benevolent AI, have identified new computer-generated targets for treating pulmonary fibrosis and chronic kidney disease, a big step towards finding new drugs. Meanwhile, in cancer, assigning the most effective therapy to patients can, at times, be a hit-or-miss process. Andrew Hopkins, the CEO of Accentia, says AI is now helping patients get the best treatment for their disease by accounting for all of its individual mutations. One file uh, published earlier this year really started to show for the first time um, an AI algorithm can actually improve the um, sub- outcomes and survival in, uh, in blood cancers uh, by the selection of the right uh, medicine for the right patients at a real sort of individualized level. These drug hunters have also shown they can save months of time in the early development stages by gathering vast numbers of potentially active molecules and whittling them down to the most effective ones. They've also saved millions compared to how expensive it has been to uncover new treatments in the past. That's because AI is really starting to grow up. Computer models today are finally getting access to the massive amounts of processing power they need, as well as the enormous data sets that can help them uncover new therapies. We start to see now those first molecules come to clinic, these first results of clinical validation coming through. I think actually what we're starting to see now is an industry that really is showing a a promise of a new way of doing things. Besides designing new molecules from scratch, AI is also being used to sift through the tens of thousands of compounds that already exist in nature to find the ones that could be harnessed into a drug. LifeMind Therapeutics analyzes fungus DNA to track down the myriad molecules that they can produce. Now, a single strain of fungus may make 5,000 different compounds, but when you search through tens of thousands of different strains and put them up against thousands of potential targets in the human body, the number of combinations can get very big very quickly. That can make the research overwhelming. 
LifeMind's founder, Greg Verdine, says it's difficult to overestimate how important machine learning has been to making that work. Acquisition of genomic data, to annotating those data, to querying them, to figuring out how to take silent biosynthetic genes and activating them, um, to figuring out which molecule is the right molecule. I don't think any of it would be doable without AI. But despite all the promise and sometimes the hype that surrounds AI and automation, Andrew Radin, CEO of Aria Pharmaceuticals, said that human experience will always be a necessary part of the equation. Artificial intelligence, to me, it's, it's a tool. And, and one of my, my favorite things to talk about is like people can pick up tools. I, I can go to the hardware store, get all the same tools that a master craftsman uses to build fine custom furniture. Trust me, you don't want me to make you a dining room table. That includes guiding a biotech company's most important decisions, such as which drugs will see research funding and clinical trials and which will not. At the end of the day, when we're advancing a program, it's not the output of the computer. It is the human that's making that choice. Only a few gene therapies have made it to market so far, and the pricey treatments haven't really broken the bank at major payers. But as more hit the scene in years to come, insurers and pharmaceutical companies need to think about how to pay for them to avoid cost shocks. Fierce Pharma editor Eric Saganowski hosted a panel with four experts to find out more about cell and gene therapies and why pricing concerns still loom. Gene therapies, such as Zolgensma, which treats spinomuscular atrophy, are intended to be just used once and potentially cure a patient of their disease. These one-and-done treatments are relatively new in the pharma world but we can expect that they're going to be a bigger part of the industry in the years to come. Take Bluebird Bio, for example. It recently won an FDA panel recommendations for two of its gene therapies, and the FDA is now set to decide on whether to approve them in the coming months. If those therapies are approved, then, like so many other gene therapies, their commercial price tags could reach into the millions of dollars. Tay Salimula, Global Head of Value and Access at Novartis, said his company has been able to scale its global operation for Zolgensma, and it's learned lessons along the way. First and foremost, look, we're dealing with um, 21st century medicines in healthcare systems that were designed for chronic therapy. Now I think we're on the cusp of about 900 cell and gene therapies. And really, we know that there, we have some proof points from Zolgensma, and some of those are that we've now treated 2,000 patients worldwide. But we're grounding in reality and see that there are headwinds in the space. Because gene therapies have the potential to confer a lifetime of benefits in a single treatment, pricing is an important and complicated debate. Despite Zolgensma's price tag of $2.1 million, cost reviewers at the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, or ICER, have endorsed the drug for its ability to benefit patients with spinal muscular atrophy. So far, Sally Mula said that in the United States, Novartis has been able to secure 80% coverage on Medicare and commercial insurance plans. But some experts warn that the model might not work for all gene therapies in all markets. In Europe, after winning an approval, it's up to biotech or pharmaceutical companies to negotiate drug prices with government health systems to ensure patient access and thus sales. Bluebird Bio has a gene therapy called Zenteglo for beta thalassemia. They previously had to pull it from the European market even after winning an approval because the company and European health systems couldn't agree on a fair price. Stephen Pearson, president of ICER, describes the gene therapy market in some countries as a dicey business proposition. I'm not going to pass judgment on whether 
the price in the European market was reasonable or what, what happened in the breakdown, if you will, of that commercial enterprise. But there's, there's still a risk that some of these treatments will not kind of flourish, at least in all you know, different, even developed countries' health systems. And ultimately, if you're thinking globally, we have a real challenge because what about the global South? How are they going to access these drugs that we may think are reasonable value at $2 million plus, but that just makes it completely you know, impossible unless it's on a completely compassionate or other basis outside the developed countries. Okay, so figuring out how to price and distribute a gene therapy is one thing, but first they need to be approved by the FDA and other regulators, which is on Brett Sally's mind. Sally is the Assistant Vice President of Pharmaceutical Trade Relations at Prime Therapeutics. He says biopharma companies will increasingly be able to get across what he calls the FDA approval hurdle with selling gene therapies. Manufacturers will figure out how to get gene therapies to market across the approval hurdle, but the big thing is going to be how do we deliver them in a, to reduce cost variability, minimize, you know, cost shocks. From the payer perspective, Kelly Miller, Senior Director of Managed Markets at Optum Frontier Therapies, says there are three major considerations for his team during coverage discussions. Optum Frontier Therapies looks at the best ways to distribute, dispense, and service advanced therapies. One is the clinical landscape of the therapy. Two is the human understanding what patients and their families are going through and have that as a, as a backdrop, as well as you know, the economic impact of the, of the treatment and session. So, you know, once we have a general understanding of those, those conversations should come fast and furious and have a appropriate dialogue in that. And that's kind of the approach that we take towards that. Right now, gene therapies are relatively new and still target very rare diseases. ICER's Steve Pearson believes that payers are going to get better at figuring out coverage for these medicines. But in the future, gene therapies could begin to treat more common diseases with larger patient populations. As they scale up, pricing and the economic landscape would also undergo a transformation. Pearson noted that as these treatments address more common diseases with larger patient populations, the system could show its weaknesses. I see both success and the ripples of potential disaster. <laughs> I think the risk or the, the disaster is uh, the gene therapy for patient populations of 200,000 to 500,000. So sickle cell may be the first one. Um, or it's likely to be the first one, but there will be others where we have gene therapy for things that afflict a lot of Americans. And if, if the pricing and the affordability kind of is, doesn't work out in the short term, I don't know, you know what could happen. Pharmaceutical companies need to think carefully about pricing for gene therapies for more common diseases. If they plan exorbitant price tags for those medicines, their launches may be met with reluctance from payers. How will we, as a life science industry, manage the affordability of gene therapies for larger populations? Because if they don't think now, if they're not part of that thinking going into it, it could lead to a pretty, pretty tough brick wall, I think. That's it for the top line. Don't forget to check out our Next Gen virtual event at nextgen.fiercelifesciences.com. I'm senior producer, Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodgson. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at fiercepharma.com. Look for podcasts. Don't forget to follow The Top Line on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you listen. And that's The Bottom Line from The Top Line.